0: Tavis Smiley, delighted to have you in with us in this hour. And in this hour, a conversation about Jews and stolen land, but not the conversation you think. In fact, I almost thought, uh, not just thought, uh, my producers and I yesterday uh, had some back and forth conversation about whether or not to actually cancel this hour. Uh, And by cancel, I mean reschedule it uh, in light of what's happening in the Middle East. Uh, We spent, as you know, the first part of our program today talking about that. Uh, and I didn't want to connect these two things. This book is getting a lot of a, a lot of uh, exposure, uh, a lot of conversation about this book because of the transparency, um, the the courage I think it took Rebecca Claren to tell this story about her own family ought to be celebrated. And I didn't want to run the risk of connecting this story about Jews and stolen land to what's happening in the Middle East uh, at the moment. So I almost thought to cancel it. And then I, I said, no, I'm going to move forward because I think I can – separate these two things and the audience is bright enough to understand why I wanted to have Rebecca on in the first place. So this conversation is about Rebecca Clarence's Jewish ancestors who fled a violent ethnic riot in Russia for the United States and started over in South Dakota. Over the next few decades, her family went on to become a celebrated American immigrant success story. What none of Claren's ancestors ever mentioned, though, was that their land, the foundation for much of their wealth, had been cruelly taken from native american peoples by the u.s government in her book the cost of free land jews lakota and an american inheritance she explores the connection between her family's history and the disenfranchisement of the lakota people Uh, and all things considered i'm still delighted to have rebecca claren on this program rebecca how are you today
1: I'm good. Better being here with you. Thanks for having me. Well,
0: I'm better for talking to you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for the text. As I mentioned, a lot of folks talking about this because we don't often see uh, family members who are so willing to be transparent uh, about their own uh, personal uh, backstories and particularly one that is as arresting, uh, for lack of a better word, as the story of your family is. So let me just start with a broad question, and we'll, we'll move through this hour. And The broad question is really just based on what I said a moment ago, which is where and why and how you decided to be so transparent about the backstory of your family that created all this wealth but did so on stolen land. So I've
1: been a journalist more than 20 years, writing most of that time about the American West. And you don't write about the American West without also covering Native nations. And it wasn't like I had this one aha moment. It actually feels like it took me an embarrassingly long time to connect the dots between the way my immigrant family had benefited from federal land policies at great cost to Native Americans. But but during the course of my career I had I was hired in like late twenty seventeen I think to write a series of stories about native nations and Native American citizens that ran in Indian country today and the nation. And it was while just only working on this series that I just realized, oh my goodness, I can no longer stand on the outside of these stories like journalists are meant to do and i think for many good reasons but to report on this as if it has nothing to do with me to say this is a societal issue to point out the ways that federal policy of the 20th century still has a legacy today for native communities and so that's it was really you know people have asked me do you feel guilty and i say no i don't i don't feel guilty i think guilt doesn't really help us in exploring the past and these histories and helping us take responsibility for our part in them. And my Native American friends have told me, you know, your guilt's really unhelpful to us. But I feel a great sense of injustice. And and that is what, and I felt the sense of what any good reporter can recognize is like, this is an important story. This is a story that hasn't been told. And I am, I think, uniquely suited to tell this story because it is both personal and a collective history.
0: Mm -hmm. I wonder um, whether we will ever get a a true glimpse, uh, and I think glimpse is probably the best we can do, um, given the question I want to pose to you now. I wonder if we'll ever get a true glimpse, uh, much less an expansive view, of the ways in which so many fellow citizens have in fact benefited from federal land policy that harmed Native Americans. I just don't think we even see the tip of that iceberg, if you will.
1: Well, we haven't. I mean, I I had an excellent education. I really did. I grew up in Seattle. I went to wonderful schools. Um, I, I never learned this history in school. Most of us don't. And so until we start to really understand the history and its fuller complexity and nuance of America, I don't think we can start to up for this, but I, I would actually say, maybe I'm naive, you tell me, mm-hmm. I feel far more hopeful than that. I actually feel like my research shows that I'm not the only person out there writing about this. There's wonderful, incredible work that's being done mm-hmm. to start to consider the history and also start to step toward how do we reckon with it, how do we reconcile, how do we repair. Certainly, there's not much being done at the federal level, and in that vacuum, it's a harder place. States are sort of some of them have history curricula that requires their states to teach Native mm-hmm. American history. Many, many more do not, um, and I do think telling the truth yeah. and and it's all its complexity is a very important part. And I think obviously the next step is well, then what do we do about the truth? And I really grapple with that in the pages of my book. But again. I don't think the fact that we're in a federal vacuum of taking responsibility means that we as individual citizens can't start to mm. to ask for that. You know, in the, in Australia, they have a, a different history, of course, but a history of um, very much oppressing the indigenous people of Australia. Mm. And again, many years ago, the Australian government wasn't doing anything to acknowledge this history, and it was citizens... Who and nonprofit groups who created these? I'm sorry, books that they mm. had printed up, put in public spaces. They became so popular yeah. of of white settlers. Sorry, I know you want to jump in here. No, 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 no.
0: I, I I'm only doing because oh. I, I got. I'm watching the clock here. I got to. I got to do this right quick. But I promise you. I promise you. Uh, when we come forward, I will not cut you off because I want to hear the rest of that. And and I, and I do want to take you up on this on this uh, question you raised. Uh, as to whether or not I think you are right uh, in terms of being hopeful that the American narrative will start to change, that we will get to a point where we can tell more truth, uh, I'm not so sure I buy that. And I'll, I'll, I'll unpack my viewpoint on that, and, and we'll get into it uh, lovingly and respectfully when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. Unapologetically progressive. progressive. Unapologetically blind. Black. black. You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Smiley. You trust to get at the truth Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. That's who. the conversation continues right now all right Rebecca Claren finish your story um it was a good one uh you were making a, uh, a comparative analysis um to the way we treat the American narrative here uh and uh, our inability at least up until this point <clears throat> to tell the whole truth um you were, you were talking about Australia finish that point and then I want to interrogate a couple things
1: okay I can't wait Uh Australia. So they had these these activists and nonprofits and individuals spread these. I'm sorry. Books that were they were sort of a blank statement of descendants of white settlers apologizing to Indigenous Australians for uh, their treatment. And there was space left for people to make their own personal statement. These were put in public spaces, libraries, town halls, etc. They were so popular. So many people signed them, and and they galvanized. Sort of a groundswell, it seems to me, from what I've read, Mm -hmm. of response. And the federal government ultimately did issue a response. Are these reactions that Canada and Australia and New Zealand have done to grapple with their complicated history perfect? No, of course not. They deserve great criticism and discussion, but at least they're doing something.
0: I always make a distinction on this program. The audience has heard it uh, more than once. I make a distinction oftentimes between optimism and hope. Um, uh, They're not really the same things. Uh, And so I don't see the evidence to be optimistic that we are living in a nation nation right now where uh, people want to be more truthful. More honest about the real backstory of the American narrative, but I, I always hold out hope. I am a, I am an eternal prisoner of hope. Um, so uh, while I'm not optimistic, I can remain hopeful that things will get better. In this regard, eh, not so sure, Becca Claren, and and here's why: we're in a moment where, while there are individuals, uh, uh, you are one of them. While there are journalists, you are one of them, who, to use your beautiful phrase, are tired of standing outside of the story. When sometimes it requires us to get inside the story, uh, I can appreciate that. While there are individuals doing that, um I'm looking at systems and structures. I'm looking at politicians who now want those systems and structures um, to tell even less truth than we've already been told. And you know where I'm going here. I'm talking about book bans and and, and teachers being punished for for teaching certain lessons in the classroom. Uh, I don't know how, how I don't know how much more. Uh, hold that's going to take across the country but while on the one hand there may be a sliver of hope on the other hand again what I'm talking about are systems and structures that seem uh, 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 hell-bent if you will on continuing to advance a narrative about the founding and the establishment uh, and frankly the 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 expanse and the growth the success of this country that we all know just not to be true does that make sense?
1: i- I mean, of course, and I completely see what you're saying, and I agree with it, but that doesn't mean that we uh, we all as individuals, I mean, what are we supposed to do? Just say there's give up, hold up our hands? I mean, I do think there's an opportunity mm-hmm. to at least step towards educating ourselves. I mean <laughs> people can start to they could read my book, they can read many other wonderful books that have been written on this topic, um, just because there is a society that's not supporting this doesn't mean we as individuals can't begin to ourselves. So yeah. I completely agree and I I don't want to minimize what you're saying in no, any sure. way. No. It's a very intractable systemic problem for sure, you know. And I do try and interrogate those systems in my books.
0: Yeah, we, we even I, I said this the other the other week or so in a different conversation. Uh, we even uh, those of us who are who are educated, those of us who are, you know, who ought to know better, uh, although well-intentioned we might be. We still continue to advance this notion that America's original sin was slavery. It's just not true. But 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 that that narrative has so taken hold and that we continue to repeat it. Uh, America's original sin was not slavery. It was what we did to these Native Americans that we're going to talk about in this hour. That was our original sin. Um, but, I, but I also think, Rebecca, there is there is some... Um, I'm trying to find the right word here. Uh, there is a particular and peculiar advantage that the nation which writ large has by not wanting to tell the truth uh, about the founding of this country. Uh, because the more truth you tell the more you find yourself in a conversation about reparations and for black people. And the more truth you tell, the more Native Americans start to press their case uh, as if they haven't done that all along anyway. But the more you start to pry open the truth uh, or a way to get at it, uh, the more complicit the country becomes and the more, the more difficult the conversation uh, becomes, if that makes sense to you.
1: A hundred percent. I think that's why you're seeing book bans. That's why you're seeing structural issues, That structural efforts to not teach this history, because that's absolutely true. Um, that's what we're up against here, you and I.
0: Mm-hmm. Nope, it's, 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 and it's formidable. It's formidable when you're trying to get the truth out, uh, when there are folks who don't want that truth to be told because their complicity means that there may be some compensation or other acknowledgement along the way that uh, the country doesn't really want to deal with. And so everybody wants to forget the past and just move forward to the future. I digress on that for now. I want to come straightway to your to your book, The Cost of Free Land, Jews, Lakota, and American Inheritance. As I said earlier, it's, it's a powerful uh, book. It's rich uh, in its detail uh, about the backstory of your own family. So let me just start with this question. Um, You've been writing about the West for for, for quite some time now, as you said earlier. But when did you come to learn about this particular story relative to your own family?
1: (laughs) I mean, I think it was starting, it was while I was doing that series of stories and starting to realize that. Oh, I have benefited. I, my family benefited from the Homestead Act. I, mm-hmm. I mean, there is incredible research that has shown that as many as like 25% of Americans living today, adult Americans, descend from those who benefited from the Homestead Act, who mm-hmm. were homesteaders, who proved up their land. And, and legal scholars referred to efforts, federal efforts to give native land to white or mostly white people um, as a huge form of affirmative action for white people, Mm -hmm. you know? And so my family was part of it, but many of us in America today are descend from that. And, and these, these, there's a sociologist who, Thomas Shapiro out of Brandeis, who, who said, you know, if you are a person who can own a home, Send your kid to college without loans. Uh, any kind of inherited wealth that you've got, it's it, and you're a homesteader. It's be, you know, and you're a descendant of homesteaders. It's probably because your family got that freelance. So, um, it's related to that. And then mm-hmm. a lot of us are are there.
0: Yep. What What do you make of this irony? Uh, and for me, I think irony is probably the best word um, at the moment. The irony that there are so many millions of fellow citizens who, when the issue of reparations comes up, will say. I didn't own any slaves. So why should I be forced to pay? I didn't benefit from slavery. So why should I be forced to use my taxpayer dollars uh, to to fund uh, reparations? I didn't benefit from it. And yet, to your point, there are about 25 percent of Americans, mostly white folk, obviously, who benefited from the Homestead Act. Uh, I'm putting it nicely benefited from. Uh, from land that was stolen from Native Americans, but that conversation never gets off the ground. They don't want to be responsible for reparations, but at the same time, they don't want to acknowledge that they benefited from the Homestead Act. How do you read that irony?
1: <laughs> well, it's, we're humans. Humans make mistakes all the time, and it's uncomfortable to take responsibility. And Early on in my process, I'm going to get back to your question. I'm going to loop around. Sure, um, sure. But... Early on, before this was even a book proposal or a book, I, and I was just starting to think about this, I was very fortunate to get to be sent to write a profile of Judge Abby Abinanti, who is the Chief Justice of the Yurok Nation of Northern California, and she was also a state superior court judge for her, most of her career for California. She's an incredible person. She runs her courtroom in the Yurok Nation with a real eye to traditional culture and justice. And she's, I mean, the way traditional justice was done for the Yurok. And she's become a model for how to run a courtroom with real empathy for people, all over, judges all over the country. And anyway, she said to me, we started to talk about my ideas about this book, and she said, if you're going to try and write this entangled history, you need to study the Jews. You have to study your own culture. What does is, what is your culture say about how to respond to a harm, even one you maybe didn't directly commit, but one you've benefited from? Mm-hmm. And that sent me on several years of study I did with my rabbi here in Portland, who, who I'm part of a congregation that's very committed to social justice, and he right away was like, yeah, this learning is important for all of us. And he gave he, so much of his time, and we spent several years looking at ancient Jewish texts and also looking at contemporary rabbis in America today who are looking to these old Jewish texts for inspiration on how to respond to what at least one rabbi says are the twin original sins of this country, Mm -hmm. both the taking and stealing of Native land and the enslaving of people. And two things, I think, are relevant to your question Mm -hmm. around that, and that are guiding at least my response to, to this truth that so many people Are saying, This wasn't me, I have nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. One ancient story is it's in Deuteronomy, and there's a story of when you find a dead body in the road, and you can't figure out it was a murdered person, and you cannot figure out who murdered this person. This ancient pre-Israelite society is being described in Deuteronomy, did not say, Oh, I guess there's nothing to be done. There was an acknowledgement that leaving sin and, and murder unaccounted pollutes the entire community. And so the people in the nearest towns would literally measure their distance to this dead body, and whoever was closest to the body had to take responsibility for it. And that meant there was like a bloody ref, you know ritual involving a heifer, not something we would do today, but it, it had an economic impact to mm-hmm. those people. Mm-hmm. And there was the sense that Sin is collective and must be born collectively. And Rabbi Toba Spitzer, who wrote an incredible sermon based on this this teaching, she said, How do we today living in America measure our distance to these foundational sins? Mm. And I I would say, That's you rich. know, Margaret Jacobs
0: That's rich, it's man. rich, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And
1: Margaret Jacobs wrote this incredible book called After One Hundred Winters and and she makes this she's a a professor and leads the Great Blains uh department at the University of Nebraska, and she would say, you know, she says, no matter when you came to America, you are benefiting from stolen land. It is the foundation of our highway systems. The breaking of treaties is is how so many of our cities were created. There are so many examples, which I lay out in the book, specific examples, and clearly, in my opinion, I, as the descendant of homesteaders, my distance to that harm is much closer than someone maybe who arrived on a slave, whose whose ancestors came against their will on slave ships, Mm. or someone who arrived in America last week. But we all benefit, Mm. and starting to consider our proximity to this, I think, is a really important first step. There's Mm. one other story. I don't know if you want me to go there. go,
0: go, go, go,
1: go. Okay, so there's this other incredible teaching that comes from the Talmud, which is another ancient text. and. It describes this debate between two rabbis that what do you do if it's discovered that a house or even a palace was built with a stolen beam in its foundation. Mm-hmm. And one rabbi says, "Well, you have to tear the whole house down and give the beam back to who it was stolen from." And the other rabbi says, "Well, no, you can just you can keep the palace or the house standing, but you have to compensate whoever it was stolen from." Both rabbis make it clear that as soon as you understand that the beam was stolen, those living in the house have to take responsibility. They have yes. to do something about it. Mm-hmm. And Sharon Browse, who's an incredible rabbi in L.A. at Ecar, she wrote in a somewhat famous, especially among Jewish circles, sermon in 2017, she wrote, our country was founded on a stolen beam. Mm-hmm. So my book grapples with how does my own family start to take responsibility for our, our piece, our very small piece, but a piece of this stolen beam.
0: We are talking about proximity and stolen beams, <laughs> and and all of that matters uh, to the story that you're going to hear uh, when we come forward. Her name is Rebecca Claren, uh, and she's speaking with great clarity uh, in this dialogue. The book is called The Cost of Free Land, Jews, Lakota, and an American Inheritance. And in the book, she tells the story of her Jewish ancestors who fled a violent ethnic riot. Uh, in Odessa in Russia for the US they start over in South Dakota they build uh, a significant amount of wealth uh, but they do it on stolen land and that story never comes out until Rebecca Claren uh, does the research to write this book The Cost of Free Land you heard uh, again with these two great stories about the Talmadge and uh, and Deuteronomy talking about proximity and stolen beams and all of us uh, have some uh, uh, some responsibility it, it seems to me uh, to accept the truth in both of those stories. But we'll get to her story about her family when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. This is getting good. Yeah, man. Tavis, Smiley Tavis Smiley continues Tavis when we come when forward. forward. Smart talk for curious people just like, you. just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. You're listening to Tavis Smiley and Rebecca Claren, author of the book The Cost of Free Land, Jews, Lakota and an american inheritance um uh, rebecca take me now straightway inside the book tell me about your family
1: <laughs> well that's a big question. Can mm-hmm. you give me a little bit more? What, like, tell me what you want to know about my family, because I wrote about them for many, many pages. No, so I understand. Tell me what I understand. That,
0: that, was my, that was my shorthand way of saying I, I want to get specific to the story of your family coming here and settling on this land okay. in South Dakota that they, that we later learned was stolen land. Yes.
1: Awesome. So, so I start my book, not in America, but in Russia, because to me, I think I've really spent my whole career thinking about how to, how does policies by governments play out in the lives of real people. And, and you see, so to start it here would be to miss the ripples of what was happening in Russia around the turn of the 1900s. And what was happening there is that my family, being Jewish, was incredibly oppressed. My great-great-grandfather, as you mentioned, was in this horrible pogrom where he was eaten to within an inch of his life. He suffered what I think probably were the effects of a traumatic brain injury from then on. His behavior was described by his children in letters that I read and in interviews other family members did with some of those people uh, as being very erratic um, throughout his life. And my family, though, like many, many, many other Jews who were living in the, what was called the Pale of Settlement in Eastern Europe, a place where most Jews could not own land, where their jobs, what jobs they could have were incredibly restricted, um, and where their lives were often in just regular danger, they flee to America, and they come to America, and many of them are coming to very overcrowded cities on the East Coast, and there's this effort... By Jews, actually, to say, let's get these people out of the cities and into the rest of these more open places. Mm-hmm. And they, it was an easy thing to do, because at that same time, politicians were wanting to fill the prairie with white homesteaders. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the reason for that is there was this effort to connect a rail line from California and all of its natural resources to East Coast cities, and they'd realized that the best way to fund that rail line was lots of little traffic along the line. So lots of little people and lots of people living in small communities along a railroad line. Mm-hmm. So that's part of why the United States eradicates and decimates the American Buffalo and why they break its promises to Native people so many times in so many years, in a few short span of years, and push them onto reservations where at the time my family comes to South Dakota, if you were Lakota living on a reservation, even though the closest Lakota reservation to where my family ends up settling was only 13 miles away, they did not interact very often with their Lakota neighbors, which was completely intentional, because you were not allowed, if you were Lakota, and many this was true for Native people all over, to leave a reservation without permission, without a pass mm. from the Indian agents, which were sort of basically like the mayor of the reservation that they were appointed by federal the federal government. So my family comes to South Dakota. I think they had no idea what they were getting themselves into. Um, they had lived, the stories are that they had lived in, quote, one of the nicest houses in Kapulia, which was the shuttle my family lived in, in an area that is today Belarus. And they come to the Plains, and they are living initially in a sod house, which is, if your listeners don't know, it's it's a house that's cut into the cut bank of the hill. And they were dirty and smelly when it rained. It rained through the roof, which was only the dirt above you. Um, their lives were very hard. Their stories that our cousin told me of his dad, who was a child on the prairie, clearing a path of rattlesnakes every morning from the house out to the outhouse and and he was five years old when he's doing that um they were they struggled they worked very hard it was they incurred incredible drought um they were very very tough and this narrative of the hardship it runs parallel to a a narrative that this was as my great-grandmother and her sister called it the Good Earth they felt American because they owned land they felt free because they owned land, and they were sort of able historians have done research that shows that sort of Jews were able and other immigrants were able to shake off their suspect immigrant status by becoming homesteaders mm-hmm. by owning land it, it It was a quick way to metabolize their sort of upness and look like they belonged and so for my family, this was this was a very important psychological thing to own land it it also based on my research looks like it was an incredibly important economic tool so i pulled every single deed on my family's land that we owned in south dakota and i pulled then every mortgage that my family got on that land mm-hmm. because you know stories are wonderful but how do you get data which is as you as you know like the scaffolding on which good journalism sure and stories hang. And so I wanted to see could I really see the impact? And what I found was these mortgages were I think very very important in building my family's wealth. An economist that I interviewed said it was really important that you don't just look at like how much did your family get for the land when they sold it, which was in mostly 1965 and then the last bit was sold in 1970 because these little bits of money they got on the value of the land throughout time helps them build their wealth. So you see, I also, my family doesn't throw anything away. Mm -hmm. And so in boxes in people's houses where other people might keep like food and coats, we have old letters and photographs and receipts and tax returns from 1911. And I was able because of that to really have this incredible trove of original research and you can when you compare the dates on those mortgages to things people are writing in letters you see they would get a mortgage out they would move away they would get a mortgage out they'd start another business that wasn't contingent on weather mm-hmm. and even of course they had to pay that money back but it it was this incredible tool of uh, really american capitalism right so mm-hmm. so my family is on the prairie There were all these incredible stories about their lives there that we heard, what I call in the book, our greatest hits. Mm -hmm. But we never really had any stories about our Native neighbors, although there were photographs that were very mysterious. I I grew up very interested in these pictures of my relatives standing next to men dressed in Native garb and war bonnets. There's one photograph that was very important to the story that I'm telling, It's my great, great Uncle Jack, and he's shaking hands with a man who's, in my family, was always, he's wearing like full Lakota regalia, and he was always described in my family as Chief Red Cloud, and the first trip I took for this, the research for this book to um, the Dakotas in early 2019, tribal historians looked at this photo, and they said, yeah, yeah, that's that's definitely not red cloud, but it looks like Joseph Whitebull. And Joseph Whitebull was a very important person in his own right. His his uncle was Sitting Bull and there was an entire book written about him uh, called Warpath in the thirties. And through friends and sources I had in the Lakota community, I got connected to Doug Whitebull, who was this is a veteran teacher and beloved coach and he he's retired now, and but the first day I met him, he said to me, "I am the oldest living descendant of Joseph Whitebull," mm. and so this story is told not only in the specifics of my family history, but I am so grateful and honored that Doug and I have spent hours and hours talking, and it's a lot about his family's Lakota story as well.
0: Yeah, there's 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 um. That's a, lot, that's a lot to take in about the relationship or lack thereof, depending on how one looks at it, between your family and these Lakota. Uh, and yet um, what comes through in this book is that that wealth that your family built um, was built on stolen land. No other way to look at it. And I want to interrogate that part of the story when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. More of Tavis Smiley when we come forward. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. We're talking with Rebecca Claren uh, about, uh, how might I put it, um, historical realities. We're talking about how uh, we approach dealing with uncomfortable truths about the past, how we then can move forward toward uh, healing wounds and wrongs that have been uh, unaddressed for for quite a while. And um, we're talking about the wealth that her family built um, uh, over a period of time in South Dakota but having done so, on stolen land, I'm just watching my clock here, Rebecca, and I'm I'm wondering how I, how I, or more, moreover, how you um, address that uh, that duality, if you will.
1: Well, after all the years of studying I did of Jewish texts, and after many many conversations with Lakota elders, with Doug Whitebull and his family. You know, I was compelled to consider how I and my family might take responsibility. I think it's really easy to have a hot take. Mm-hmm. If I just sort of bottom line, here's what my family's doing, I think it's really easy probably to respond to that sure. in a way and not take it in. And I, I'm i not trying to be dismissive, but I am just here to say I I came to this personal decision with incredible sense of the nuance and complexity and really weaving it together. And so I guess I am just saying, I think each of us need to look at our own traditions and need to, or I would like it. My favorite feedback on the book so far is when people read it and they say, you know, this was about your family, but it sure made me think about my own. Mm -hmm. And in the back of the book, I do have resources for further research that if you feel compelled after reading this book to think about, what we talked about, you know, your distance to this and start Mm -hmm. to learn more about it. It's by no means a definitive list, but it is the resources that were very helpful to me when I was beginning my research and I I share them there, hoping that they help other people start to excavate their own histories and find their own, find themselves in this story. Mm -hmm. I think that's a really important first step.
0: Yep. Um, When you hear people say that they, they can situate their own humanity or the lack of humanity, for that matter, of their own families, in your story—that uh, makes you feel how?
1: It makes me feel like I didn't work for five years on a book project for my own vanity. Mm. I mean, I guess I feel delighted that—and it was—and you talk. We started this conversation about optimism versus hope.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Don't write a book this challenging. I mean, all books are hard, I think, but this was a very hard book to write, and I—I I was. Compelled to keep going at many places that were very difficult, out of the hope, let's call it, that mm-hmm. that it would resonate with people, and mm-hmm. so it's it's gratifying. It, will it reach everyone? No, of course not, and that's okay. But I'm grateful that you're you're helping spread the word about it because I I really believe it's important.
0: No, I think I think um, the the, this, the salient point in this conversation for me, and there have been many, but the the this, the primary point for me in this conversation is for us to consider the proximity, uh, as you put it. Um, that many of us have to these historical realities, uh, and that uh, again, many of us are the the beneficiaries of stolen beams. Uh, I'm still holding on to those two points. We'll wrap our conversation with Rebecca Claren when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Tavis, Tavis Smiley, rank right. right. number 45 on the Heavy Hundred list of the 100 most important radio talk show hosts in America. Yeah, yeah. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. 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 More of Tab and Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. right now. right now. Rebecca Claren, I am I am curious as to what uh the writing of this book and the wrestling with um your own family history has taught you about and I don't want to colour this any more than I'm, I'm asking it uh, unapologetically and deliberately broad. Um what have you learned about truth and justice, courtesy of writing this text? <laughs>
1: Oh my God. Oh, such a huge question. I mean, I would think, I think one of the things I've learned that feels very relevant to me in this moment is that we can hold two things at once. Mm-hmm. That it's possible to have been oppressed and to be part of an oppressive system. It is possible. Certain families and members of mine have really, I, I did things differently than I have in the past as a journalist for magazines and that I, a year ago, when this book was you know many drafts done, but not typeset, shared it with members of my family, and I also shared it with the White bull family. I actually read it over the phone to Doug because he's blind at this point, and I wanted him to make sure mm-hmm. I was representing his stories with accuracy and um and that there was it was hard it's been hard for some members of my family to to see our ancestors in all their complexity, to 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 really grapple with what I say in the book is sort of the white spaces around the edges of the stories we've been told. Mm-hmm. This book started with these questions of what are the stories we tell, and what are the stories we don't tell in families and in nations. But I would say what's been amazing is that members of my family who c- can say, this is so hard, and we are so proud of you, and we love you so much— my Aunt Etta recently, right before Yom Kippur, wrote me this note, she's 90 years old, and she said, thank you for helping me be more of a realist at the age of 90. And I think, to me, that's so amazing. Mm. And and like if, if she, at 90 years old, can have her mind expanded, even though this is so personal, it gives me, let's use that word again, hope. It gives me hope for the rest of us. Yeah.
0: Well, again, my takeaway from this conversation and from this book is that uh, Americans writ large would do well to start to consider their own proximity um, and their complicity, frankly, to systems and structures that have uh, been at the epicenter of injustices for many of our fellow citizens uh, and to recognize, again, as you said earlier, that uh, so many of our fellow citizens uh, are living in 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 structures where there are stolen beams um i'll leave it there for now the book is called the cost of free land jews lakota and an american inheritance is written by rebecca claren who i've been honored to have on this program for this hour rebecca thanks for the uh, for the conversation congrats on the book and all the best to you appreciate your time
1: thank you so much for having me great talking
0: good to have you on